This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in who you believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from the people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets who persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone and by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we are forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return to see you face to face. So we wanted to come see you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But Satan hindered us. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Aubrey. And we had a great time yesterday at the chili cook-off, all of you who made it. Um, and uh, just want to say thanks for everybody who put that on, and thanks to Brooke, who kind of uh, organized all of it, got it all situated and arranged. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be preaching through the book of Thessalonians, and I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm glad to be with all of you this morning. And I'm also like glad to be able to say that this is my favorite church that I've ever been a part of. And I'm not, that's not, I'm not looking for everyone to like burst into applause or pat me on the back or anything like that because I feel like mostly it's happened in spite of me, not because of me. But it's my favorite church I've ever been a part of. It's uh, really the first church that I've been a part of that I really felt comfortable being my own self. And one of my favorite things to hear is when other people say something along those lines, like I'm learning that it's okay to be me, it's okay to struggle and to suffer and to doubt, and that I'm doing that forward. You know, I'm not, I'm not doubting backwards and moving away from faith, I'm doing it forward with other people. Um, we had our overseers in, and over and over again, they just said that there's just this overwhelming positive sense, there's this overwhelming belief that God is up to something, that God is doing something, and even more than that, that we're all ready for God to do something together, like that together we're looking for God to do something great. And uh, I just wanted to say that I'm, I'm glad to be a member of this church, much less the pastor. I'm, just, I'm glad to be a member of it because all of you have done a great job at caring for me, allowing me to care for you, that there's a mutuality and a friendship and a love that exists between us. And my hope is that everyone would get to experience what I get to experience by being part of this church family. And that everyone would feel a strong sense of commitment to giving that away more than a uh, sort of self-centered desire to receive that from others. And I think that's part of what makes the Thessalonian church so exemplary. I think it's something that we'll see as we continue to go through the book. It's something that I think Paul draws out a little bit today. But as we began, I just, I wanted to remind you, this book's written to a local church. It's written to a small group of believers who are trying faithfully to share the gospel, to share their lives, to love one another well, to make an impact in the world around them, to be generous for the cause of the kingdom, to places that perhaps they would never visit or never actually know anyone else 
who was from there. And, uh, and that's what makes them such an exemplary and wonderful church. Uh, so in this passage, Paul's kicking things off, and as he often kicks off a new paragraph in the book of Thessalonians, he's just again saying how encouraged and thankful that he is about this church. He says, this is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God, which works effectively in you who believe. This is why we constantly thank God, Paul says. Here's why. Because you received the word of God as the word of God. You received the word of God not as uh, some good suggestions, not as some helpful moral advice, not as like some sort of guidebook for how to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, you received the word of God as the word of God. That seems like such a simple thing, doesn't it? Here's the word of God. Oh, I received that as the word of God. And yet, if you're anything like me, it goes like this. Here's the word of God. I'm really kind of busy today. I've got some Netflix that I've got queued up that I'm really looking forward to watching. I've got a couple of games on my phone that I'm super into. I'm kind of tired. I'm going to just sit here and wander off uh, into the mystery of existential crises and anxieties rather than receiving the word of God as the word of God. The word of God has 40 different authors. The writing of it spans 5,000 plus years. It's 66 different books or letters that have been combined into one volume. And I want to say this right out of the gate. The key to the whole Bible is Jesus. If you're going to read one section of the whole Bible, read the Gospels. And look at how Jesus talks about the Bible. Because here's why it all comes down to Jesus. is because... All the Old Testament points to a Messiah and prophesies about a Messiah and creates expectation of a Messiah and creates hope of a Messiah. The whole sacrificial system is built on the idea that someday there would be a perfect sacrifice, which would be, of course, the Messiah. Jesus arrives and says, I am that guy. I am that dude. He's the original, I am that guy. That's who he is. That's who I am. And you look at what Jesus has to say about the Old Testament. He revered the Old Testament. He respected the Old Testament. He had a full knowledge of the Old Testament. He had a perfect understanding of the Old Testament. He understood how to fulfill everything that was written in the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament. He was all about the Old Testament. And either Jesus is who he claimed to be. Do we need to switch mics? I don't know what's going on with this thing. It's like... It's freaking out. Something's twisted? Yeah. Well, we're going to... Yeah, I'm going to turn this off and switch. Thanks, Brooke and Aubrey and Carrie, everyone else who used this mic. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be, which means that what he said about the Bible is trustworthy and true, or Jesus is not who he claimed to be. And if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, then every other claim about the falsehood of the Bible becomes irrelevant. It becomes an unnecessary point. The truth is this, is that a lot of people dismiss the Bible. They disbelieve the Bible because they fail to understand how to read the Bible. It's one of the most common reasons, I think, for people to distrust the Bible is because they'll read, for instance, the book of Genesis. If you read the book of Genesis, there are some super weird and terrible stories. And the patriarchs of old were some awful people. Like, they, they are not Jesus. They are not the guy that you're like, that's who I want to pattern my life after. 
People will look at it and they'll go, the patriarchs of the faith. These guys all had multiple wives. And the Bible doesn't condemn them in Genesis for having multiple wives. And they'll say, so clearly the Bible is okay with polygamy. But the truth is, is that everybody in the Bible, everybody in the Bible who had multiple wives had a tragic life. They didn't have a good life. They didn't have the life that where they're just going, everything is great in my life. No, everything is a disaster. Their kids are a mess. Their families are a mess. Their relationship with their kids are a mess. Their relationship with their wives is a mess. It's all a huge mess. And the, the, the deal is, is that Genesis is not written as instructional material. It's historical narrative. It's like saying you're going to read Harry Potter and make it your life's ambition to go and find horcruxes and destroy them. That's not the point of the book. It's a story. It's telling you the story of a person's life, the real story. So you draw out lessons from it. It's historical narrative. There's all different kinds of genres in, inside the Bible. And, and here's the bottom line of it. There's more than enough evidence to believe that the Bible is true. There are more copies, more ancient copies of Scripture than any other ancient text that exists. There are, there's more than enough evidence to believe that it's true. And there are more than enough reasons to doubt it. And you could go online today and just Google, is the Bible reliable? And you'll find some sites that are like, here's all the reasons why it's reliable. And you'll find some sites that are like, here's all the reasons why you shouldn't believe in the Bible. And our religion, and really all of life, quite honestly, comes down to this one single thing, faith. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to belief. That's the one thing we add to the pot of our salvation. That's the one thing we add to the pot of our existence. That's the one thing that we add to the equation of all that God has done for us, all that he has created for us, is without faith, it says in Hebrews, it's impossible to please God. You cannot do it. Without faith, you cannot believe. Without faith, you cannot have salvation. Without faith, you can't believe that God exists, that Jesus is the Savior, that, that really, honestly, without faith, you can't do anything. You know why? Because none of us can really explain how atoms work. Atoms have inside of them positively charged particles and char uh, char uh, particles that have no charge. And outside those atoms are electrons, negatively charged particles. And the law of attraction says that opposites attract, which means that those particles inside of the atom, inside the nucleus, should split out and join with the particles that are outside of it. The positive should go to the negative and the negative to the positive, but that's not what happens. What happens instead is that the negative attaches to the other negative and creates a bond. And the positive doesn't drive itself crazy and split. If it did, the atom would split. We have faith that the atom isn't going to split. If every atom in all of existence split, that'd be one heck of a fireworks show. You wouldn't get to see it because all the atoms that make up your eyeballs would be exploding. You and I have faith. We have faith every day. We get into our cars and we get out onto the road. And we have faith that people are going to drive where they're supposed to drive. That when the light goes red, usually they will stop. That when you find the stop sign, they'll at least slow down and roll through it. That they'll drive on the side of the road that they're supposed to drive on. That people in society will act civil towards you. We have all kinds of faith that our lungs are going to keep working. That our brains are going to keep functioning. That our hearts are going to keep pumping. That the people who are part of our lives are going to continue being part of our lives. That kindness is something that we can expect from others. 
that our jobs will still be there tomorrow, that our hair will still be there on our faces tomorrow. It comes down to faith. And those of you who are doubters in the room, what's your alternative? What's the alternative to the narrative of Christianity? What's the alternative to the worldview of biblical Christianity? The alternative is this. You are part of a meaningless universe, living a meaningless existence, where morality is simply a construct of society's collective decisions based on absolutely nothing. Your life is meaningless, purposeless, hopeless, and empty. And every attempt to create meaning, you know as well as I do, outside of biblical Christianity, every attempt to create meaning is a waste of your time. Without God, there really is nothing else. But you know what we like to do? We like to straddle the line. We like to take the benefits of being a son or a daughter of the king without taking the responsibilities of being a son or a daughter of the king. We like to take the blessings of the royal family without bearing the authority of being underneath the rule of a sovereign. Paul says this is why we constantly thank God. This is the reason that you are a great Church, this is the reason that you are powerful. This is the reason you're effective. This is the reason you're faithful. This is the reason you're making a difference. And this is the reason why this small little church of abused and abandoned and neglected and insignificant followers of Jesus are commemorated for all eternity because the word of God stands forever is because you received the word of God as the word of God. You want to solve every conflict in your life. Receive the word of God as the word of God. It doesn't mean every relationship will be perfect, but it means that you get to live at peace. Because as much as it depends upon you, you've done all that you can do. And when your heart still condemns you, the Bible will tell you that God is greater than your heart. So you listen to God and not to your own heart. Thessalonians believed in God's word powerfully changed their lives. You received it as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. They were courageous in the face of persecution. They had grit and endured suffering and poverty. They loved one another through every season of life. They were extravagantly generous, and they sacrificed so that others might hear. The Bible is not a book of antiquated ideas or hope-filled morality. It's God's word. It's the authority for all of life, for all of time. For all people everywhere. Our failure to acknowledge it as an authority does not make it less authoritative. In the same way that my failure to acknowledge a speed limit doesn't change the speed limit. And every now and then, the lights come on. Either of awareness or of punishment, (laughs) of consequence. God's word is not going to be a benign authority in your life. God's word cannot be a benign authority in your life. It can be a dismissed and an ignored authority, but it cannot be a benign authority. Because if God's word becomes authoritative in your life, it will work effectively in you. It will produce in you what God wants it to produce in you. 
which, by the way, if we could just be honest, is the kind of thing that goes on a bumper sticker but should be part of a horror movie. Philippians 1.6 is still the scariest verse in all the Bible to me. You can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is faithful, and he will see it through to the day of completion. You know what that means? God has something in mind for you. He's working on you. He's making you something. And the one who is bound and determined more than any other being in existence, the one who knows all things, the one who possesses all power, the one who is all places, the one who created time, he says this about Raiden Hollis. He's not yet what I want him to be, but he will be no matter what. I will finish with that boy what I started in that boy. He's going to finish his work in us. Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. Just flip over to Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, or listen to me as I read it. Isaiah said this, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word, God says, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. God's word inside of you will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. And it will do in you what pleases him. And Paul, in his letter, his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he said all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God's word is there to be an authority over us that enriches and blesses our life, that conforms us into the image of Jesus, that completes what God wants to do inside of us. It's profitable for us, but it's not benign in us. And Paul says, this is why we thank God for you. When we think about the church in Thessalonica, this is why we get on our knees and say, thank you, God, because you took the word of God and you said, that is actually the word of God. And Paul says, look at how effective it's been inside of you. Just look at how effective it's been inside of you. And could I say, if you're looking at your own spiritual life and it feels more anemic and less powerful, if you find yourself not being able to overcome temptation and sin, that the secret is not in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which, by the way, is a phrase that was intended to mean an impossible thing because you cannot grab a hold of something attached to your foot and lift yourself into the air. You can jump, but that's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's jumping, and you still come right back down, and if you're like me, pretty quickly. You know what I'm saying? You still come right back down. That if you're feeling like your spiritual life is flagging, if it's lagging behind, if it's not where you want it to be, could I make two suggestions to you? Number one, get into the word. And number two, get into the word with someone else. Dig into God's word because it's powerful and it's effective. When it's the authority, it's effective. Verses 14 through 16, Paul says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And as a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. You became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffer the same things that they're suffering. You became imitators of God's churches in Judea. There's a temptation in church plants particularly, probably in regular churches too, uh, established churches too, uh, to be unique, to try to be unique. Like we're going to carve out this unique place and we're going to be unique. And can I just say that being a unique church is not a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a great thing. I'm hopeful that our church is unique. But I think that it's a pretty terrible target to aim at. Uniqueness should be a byproduct of faithfulness. Faithfulness will never be a byproduct of uniqueness. The goal is not for us to try to be as unique as possible. The goal for us as a church is to be as faithful as possible. And as we are faithful, you know what we will discover? We are different than other churches. You know why? Because I'm different than other pastors. You're different than other members. And the collection of these saints together, when they are following Jesus with full hearts, when they are following Jesus with clear consciences, when they are following Jesus with a burning passion to see the community around them transformed by the hope of the gospel, it will look different. You know why? Because we are all unique individuals gathered together. It means we have unique passions. Some churches may have more brains than we have. Some churches may have more hands than we have. Some churches may have more engineers than we have or more teachers than we have. That the collection of saints that's gathered together is a body of believers. And every body is different based on the parts that are attached to it. If I had six arms, I would be unique. But the purpose of my birth wouldn't be to grow six arms so that I could be unique. The uniqueness would be a byproduct of just being born and being me. Our uniqueness will just be a byproduct of us being faithful to who God has invited us to be. There was a season of our life where we had entrepreneurs coming out of our ears. It's like everybody in our church was starting their own business. Some of them were shooting for like double diamond emerald status where they got the jacket or the car or whatever. That's great. Some of them were starting their own businesses. Some of them had started multiple, like a series of businesses. Well, what's God doing with that? If our church is filled with 250 teachers, what could God do with that? Our church is filled with us. And the question we have to ask is, what's God inviting us to do? Who is God inviting us to be? It's critical that we know each other. Not that we show up and observe someone performing on stage, but that you make a commitment to know the people who are part of this body. Why? Because it's our job to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. And when I love people, you know what it looks like? It looks like encouragement. Because that's how God made me. He made me to be an encourager. I love doing it. I have friends who are teachers. Like they, they are prophet teachers. And so when God stirs them up, they are instructing people, do it like this and not like that. God stirs up their souls to see things clearly, right and wrong. I have friends and family who have very high justice values. They can't stand it when they see someone being mistreated. Could I just tell you, could I just set you free and tell you, 
You were shaped for a purpose. You were made for a purpose. You don't need to be someone else. You don't need to strive to be someone else. You need to discover all that God made you to be and follow him in the skin that he gave you. Eric Liddell was a, a famous runner in England in the 1920s competing in the Olympics. He was the favorite to win the 100-yard dash, and he was a faithful follower of Jesus. And the movie Chariots of Fire is about him. And it's about the other guy who ran uh, for England that was also running in the 100, and I can't remember his name right now. He's not important to the story, so don't worry about it. <laughs> watch the movie. It's a great movie. Actually, it's a real slow burn movie. It's not super exciting, but you should still watch it anyway. But Eric Liddell is a faithful follower of Jesus who had a call in his life to be a missionary. In one of the scenes of the movie, it's a, it's a, a pretty accurate portrayal of his actual life. He's having a conversation with his sister, and he's talking about the race that's coming up, the Olympic race that's coming up. And she's telling him, you really shouldn't be training to run. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be running. You should be training for ministry. You have a call on your life. You should be training for ministry, not trying to run. And Eric Liddell has this great line, actually a series of great lines, where he says, it's true that I have a call on my life to missions. And God made me to be a pastor, but he also made me fast. And I feel the Lord's pleasure when I run. Have you ever done anything? Have you ever done anything that when you did it, you knew in your soul, God is so happy with me doing this. When Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he wasn't talking about an experience of ease. He wasn't talking about a life that sits back on its heels. He was talking about a life that was made for you a path of following him that was made for you. And the Christian life is never an isolated individual experience, which means, of course, the people in this room need you. And you desperately need them. Not to be someone else, but to be who God made them to be. Paul doesn't, Hide it. He's like, you became imitators of the church in Judea, and good for you, because the churches in Judea faced a harsher persecution than any churches around them. What the Macedonians were going through wasn't comparable to what the churches in Judea had to go through. They killed Jesus. They mistreated the prophets. A persecution broke out so severe that most of the letters of the New Testament that Paul wrote were written to people that had been flung to the far edges of humanity because of that persecution. The more that we can learn from and imitate faithful churches and faithful church plants, the more faithful and effective and unique we will become. I think, <clears throat> truthfully, I think Satan's largely okay with most churches and with most church plants. It's a weird thing to say from a guy whose job is literally to be uh, making a church. Like, that's my job, is to pastor a church. But I really do think, for the most part, Satan's like, I'm fine with that. And I gotta be honest, I think for the most of the existence of this year for Red Hill, Satan's been pretty okay with what we've done. We've cared for each other well. I don't think he likes that, but it hasn't seemed to get his hackles up. What seems to really infuriate him and cause problems to arise outside is this one little thing. Paul says, he's talking about the, the, um, the persecutors. You suffered the same things in verse 14 from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. He says, these guys who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us, they displeased God. They're hostile to everyone. 
by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Satan hates churches that are faithful in the work of sharing the gospel. Satan's fine with churches that exist only for themselves. Churches that have the perspective of the frozen chosen, you know what I'm saying? The frozen chosen, like we're lodged in here, our foreign no more. We're happy with the church that we have and we don't want it to change. So we don't really want a bunch of new people coming in. We really like it the way that it is. Satan's like, perfect. I'm gonna make you guys as content as possible. There'll usually be enough money. There'll be just enough people. And what we'll do is we'll just ride this thing out until the last generation dies off. And then we'll take the building and turn it into a condo or some kind of a club. And that's what happens in most of the major cities across the United States now. The beautiful old church buildings that have been hollowed out shells of themselves. The church is the one organization on earth that exists for the people who are not yet part of it. Just think about that for a second. We exist for the people who are not yet part of us. Verses 17 and 18 Paul says, but as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, and I, I love the parenthetical note, in person, but not in heart. Like we never really left you. You know, it's like your mom, you know, my heart's going with you. You know, you, you have my heart. That's my mom, at least. After we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Can I tell you the secret to a full, rich, and meaningful life? You ready for it? Here's the secret. The secret to a wonderful life. Give your heart away. It's not the secret to a pain-free life. It's definitely not the secret to a life that never experiences loss. But as C.S. Lewis said, the only place where a person can be perfectly safe from all of the dangers of love is in hell. That's the only place where you're perfectly safe. Give your heart away. This is the first step of faith. This is the foundation of love. And this is the catalyst for all generosity. Love is the only path where our pain has a purpose. It's the only path where we can find lasting significance. It's the only path where we can find hope, meaning, community, and joy. And Paul understood something really important about love. It's best expressed and best experienced in person. It's just the truth. We don't have our live stream up and running. It's a shame because this would be a perfect time to rebuke all the people who said, I'll just sit at home and watch it instead of coming because it's just not the same. It just isn't the same and it's not supposed to be. Here's what happens for most people who make a commitment to experiencing church virtually. They're super committed. They're a little inconvenienced. They're a little too busy. They're completely disconnected. Because you and I weren't made to watch Christianity happen. We were made to participate in it. We weren't made to observe worship. We were made to participate in it. I get that not everyone in the room is a singer. I'm a singer, not necessarily a good one, but I'm a singer. I get that not everyone is a singer, but you were made to participate in worship, to be a part of it. 
You were made to be a blessing to the people who are gathered with you. And look, if you look around the room and you're like, these guys are all misfits and weirdos, like two words of encouragement, you fit right in. And number two, God's smarter than you are. He knew what you needed and he knew who needed you. You can trust him or, or guess what? Or you can't and everything is meaningless and hopeless. There's not a middle ground. Either you can trust him because he knows what you need and wants to give it to you because he loves you and he wants you to have a full, rich, meaningful life or he doesn't exist and everything is a waste of time. Everything is meaningless. You're like, man, that's, that's pretty extreme. Is there like a part existence of God that sort of makes sense and sort of makes you have a good life and gives you the hope of some sort of like sit on a cloud and play a harp heavenly experience? Has anybody besides a professional harpist ever thought that would be a wonderful way to spend eternity? Wearing a toga, playing a harp, sitting on a cloud, that's eternity? Not according to the word of God, but what does the Bible know? It's just the word of God. Online church, virtual church, metaverse church, podcast church will never be able to replace in-person church. The people in this room need you. They need you to share the gospel with them. They need you to share your life with them. They need you to stir them up to love and good deeds. And you need them for the same exact reasons. Because every single one of us, especially me, including me, almost always me, doubts, gets discouraged, wonders if they're making any kind of an impact at all, wonders if they're really doing something that's worth doing, wonders if they're ever going to get on top of the sin that they're struggling with, wonders if they're ever going to have the courage and the boldness to share their faith with someone else. Paul says, we wanted to come to you. Even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. The next time you're thinking, maybe I'll just skip church. You just like, I want you to hear me saying this right now. You make a decision whether or not you're gonna play for team Satan or team Jesus. <laughs> All right, there are good and legitimate reasons to not be at a worship gathering. Okay, let's just say that. Generally speaking, that's not what keeps us out. Generally speaking, Satan puts up some kind of a hindrance to us being here and we say, I guess I just won't go. You, you are more than a conqueror. You are more than an overcomer through him who loves you. That's what God's word has to say about you. That's who you are in Christ. Paul says, for who is our hope or joy? or crown of boasting in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. You, Thessalonian church, you poor, abused, neglected, overlooked, persecuted, small, insignificant local church. You are our hope. You are our hope. You understand the apostle Paul gave it all up. He could have been the preeminent rabbi in all of first century Jerusalem. He could have been a high priest. He could have been the, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was on the career track. He could have had it all. And he said, 
I considered all of that as rubbish in comparison with knowing Jesus and literally gave his life for the purpose of seeing people saved. That literally gave his life and not just like in a way that showed up and, and he got to just show up and die. It wasn't like he just said, hi, Phoebe, I love you. It wasn't like he just said, I'm going to show up one time, preach the gospel and be killed. That's not that hard. It takes some guts. That's not that hard. You know what's hard is to be a living sacrifice after church, maybe. We'll talk to mom and dad. She wants to touch my belly button, but she's not allowed. It's against the rules in the Morehouse. It's Easy to be a one-time sacrifice. I mean, you know, generically speaking, I haven't personally done it. It's at least easier than being a living sacrifice where you become a human punching bag, a target of endless ridicule and accusation, abandoned, isolated, hungry all the time, barely having enough clothes, cold in the winter, roasting hot in the summer, walking everywhere you go, never having enough money, having to work so that you're not a burden on these local churches, trying to share the gospel, being misunderstood, mistreated, and misrepresented everywhere you go, being imprisoned just for doing the right thing. Where are you, by the way, God? I'm over here serving you. Here I am in jail, being whipped to the 39 lashes minus one, being shipwrecked and lost at sea. That's what Paul gives his life for. And he says, you little church, little Thessalonian church, you're my hope. You're my hope that my life hasn't been wasted. My ministry hasn't been wasted. Everything I've been giving myself to, it hasn't been wasted. You're my hope. Not only that, you're my joy. You're my joy. Look at how good it is when it works. Look at how good it is. It's like, I imagine, because mine aren't grown up yet, but when your kids grow up, and they make like the best decision ever. And you're like, yes! I'm taking full credit for that alongside of my wife who gets all the actual credit. But two become one, so I get the credit. <laughs> but look at what we did. They're doing it the right way. Yeah, let's go. You are our joy. And not only that, you are our crown of boasting. Not just generically, but at the coming of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ shows up. He walks up to you and he's like, what do you want to tell me about? What are you proud of? What can you point to that tells me that you've been living your life to follow me? And Paul's like, let me take just a minute and show you this beautiful crown that I've got that's called the church at Thessaloniki, right? Let me show you my Thessalonians. Let me just brag about how they are following you. Paul is saying... This is the best thing we've ever been a part of. This is the best thing we've ever done. I'm going to tell everybody about it. And when Jesus shows up, that's what I'm going to talk to him about. Look at what's happening in Thessalonica. Look at how the word of God is received as the word of God. And look how effective it is. Look at the impact that that's making. I'm going to brag to the Lord Jesus about you. You are our glory. You are our joy. The full impact of this local church was constantly, powerfully affecting Paul. The whole letter just reeks of it. 
I'm so encouraged about you guys. I love you guys so much. Look at what you're doing. Look at all that's going on. Look at all the good things that are happening. He writes to the Corinthians, the disaster that was the Corinthian church with all kinds of weird stuff happening inside of the body and everybody seems okay with it. And he's like, look at the Macedonians. Look at the Thessalonians. Terribly abused. Not like you Corinthians living in relative ease. Like wildly impoverished, not like you Corinthians living here in the suburbs in affluence. And yet out of all of that comes this wealth of generosity where we had to stop them from giving. Can you imagine? Can you imagine me standing up on a Sunday morning and saying, guys, listen, we don't have any more church plants to support. We don't have any more missionaries to give to right now. And you got to keep a little bit of your money for yourselves. That's what Paul had to do with the church in Thessalonica. We had to tell them. He says, they begged us earnestly for the privilege and the joy of giving, participating in the advancing of the kingdom in other places. Man, I don't know. Nobody can give you this kind of local church. There is no pastor anywhere who has ever lived that can create this kind of local church. There is no group of elders that can lead the creation of this kind of local church. You cannot discover this kind of a local church. You cannot find it or stumble across it. You could visit every church in town. This is the kind of local church that only happens when all of us who are part of it say, this is what we want. Not a casual experience of a Sunday morning where we gather together and sing and listen to Raiden or someone else preach, but a full and rich experience that transforms the whole of our lives, all of our existence, knowing that some of that transformation is going to be wildly uncomfortable for us. But we say together, this is what we want and we won't settle for anything less than that. We won't tolerate any longer the milk toast Christianity that says it's okay to just show up and leech. It's okay to just show up and expect to be fed. But instead we say, we demand to be a part of the group, to be a part of the family that says we share a mutual responsibility and accountability for one another to feed, to be fed, to give and to receive, to love and to be loved, to serve and to be served, to celebrate and to grieve, to pray and to worship. And that we make a determination inside of our own hearts, inside of our own families, and as a covenant community together, we will not allow one another to settle for something below that because that is beneath us. That's beneath the dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's beneath the inheritance that was promised to us and purchased for us. It's beneath the privilege of sons and daughters of a king. And we won't take it. We want all that God has promised to us. We want to receive it all. Because guys, 
either it's all true and it's all ours, or let's pack it up, split up the bank account and go home. But there isn't a middle way. My hope for our church family, my commitment for the rest of my life, so long as Jesus lets me stay, my promise to you is that's what I want to be pointed at with this body of believers. But the truth is this, without you, I will definitely veer off course because I am no different than you are. I'm a sack of skin and bones and blood and tissue. Dealing with my own set of struggles, discouragements, doubts, and temptations. I can't take you there and you can't take me there, but if we go there together, we will get there. We have the unchanging promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon this rock, upon this testimony that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, Jesus said, I will build my church. And as long as you and I make a covenant together that says in our own relationships, the gospel will rule. And in our everyday lives, the gospel will rule. Jesus will build the church. He'll take care of the heavy lifting. Let's pray together. As we move into this response, and as you begin, even just right now, not even listening to me, but dealing with what God might be doing in your own heart. Could I say this? That if you've not given your life to Jesus, you're not part of this. Not because we don't want you to be part of it, but because that is the entry point. Salvation is the entry point into all the benefits that God has promised to you. And the good news is, that it's good news. It's good news for you, for me, and for everyone else who hears it. It is good news that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this morning, you can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. This morning, you can move from a person who is not part of the family to a person who is in the family. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens that door, I'll come in. I will come in. And this morning, right now in this moment, you can surrender your life to Jesus. Just by admitting that you're a sinner, by believing that Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt that your sin created, and by confessing, by, by saying, you're the Lord of my life. I'm giving it all to you. And I wanna invite you before we do anything else, I wanna invite you where you're sitting to do that. And I wanna tell you that as you do that, and if you do that, I wanna talk to you because I wanna encourage you. I wanna celebrate with you. I wanna help you follow Jesus. I wanna watch you and, and inspire you and encourage you and be encouraged by you as we try to serve him and live for him together. When I close this response time, my part of it, I'm gonna be in the back. I'd love to pray with you. If you've given your life to Jesus, please come and talk to me, come and talk to Josh. Tell somebody before you leave, fill out a connection card so that we can talk to you and encourage you and pray with you. 
for those of you who are followers of Jesus and are, and are part of Red Hill Church, we gotta make a decision together that the word of God is the word of God. We gotta make a decision together that we're not gonna settle for less, that we're gonna give ourselves fully to the work that God has given us, that we're gonna learn together how to follow Jesus, that we're gonna do something with our lives that's worth doing and that we're gonna do something with our church that's worth being part of. There is a huge need in our community for the gospel. It's massive. We're gonna need each other to get the word out. And for those of you dealing with anything and everything else, could I encourage you to listen carefully to the spirit and to just obey. If that means you need to get up and talk to somebody during this time, get up and talk to somebody. If that needs, you, know, you need to make a phone call or send a text message, you need to apologize, seek forgiveness or offer forgiveness, do it. Don't wait, do it. I'll be available in the back to pray for you, as will Josh. If you're sick and you want someone to pray for you, you got stuff going on in your life, you want someone to pray for you, this is a praying church. Whether you're saved or not saved, whether you're a member or not a member, whether this is your million time or your first time, you can come back and we would love to pray with you and to pray for you. We take the Lord's Supper together. Those of us who are followers of Jesus here at Red Hill, we take the Lord's Supper every week as a reminder that Jesus Christ has died for us, that his death, burial, and resurrection created a new covenant that's based not on our obedience to the law, but instead is based on what Jesus has done for us. And as you take that this morning, as you peel that first layer off and take that cracker that's supposed to be representative of the body of Jesus and drink that little shot of grape juice that's representative of the blood of Jesus, you're making a, a declaration that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is what makes you right with God. Not the act of taking those things, but the act that Jesus performed on your behalf. You're saying, he's what makes me right. Do it with a sense of awe and wonder and gratitude. And then we're gonna sing together. Not everybody's a singer and I get that, but every one of us is a worshiper and we should be engaged, celebrating all that God has done for us, thanking him for all that he is. When you're ready, you can do all of those things. I'm gonna pray for us and we'll continue this response moment. And I also wanna say those of you who are gonna be picking up kids from our kids ministry, you'll be able to pick them up over there on the right-hand side, we'll pray. Those of you who wanna pray in the back, just to the side of the soundboard over by the window. Let me pray for us now. God, we are grateful to be yours, your sons and your daughters gathered in this place to celebrate you, to lift high the name, the person, the work of Jesus, to speak back and forth to one another, the hope of the gospel to see you bring things and people from death to life, to restore what's broken, to heal the sick, to overcome every obstacle, to continue in us what you've begun. Speak to us, we're your people. Lead us, we're your people. Fill us with your spirit, we are your people. And when we leave, send us with the hope of Jesus. We are your people. It's in his name that we pray these things.
Amen. I'll be available to pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes, we'll sing together.